the other day. It's interesting the different portions of Scripture that come to mind as I visit with him. And I read him 1 Corinthians 13 this week. And just thinking of those phrases, now we see through a glass darkly, then face to face. Turn with me tonight, if you would, to the 74th Psalm. Psalm 74, continuing to look at the Psalms of Asaph. Of course, as we said at the beginning, the choir of Asaph included in some of these, it would seem as these reach beyond the lifespan of that individual Asaph in the days of David early. Psalm 74, Miscule of Asaph. O God, why hast Thou cast us off forever? Why doth Thine anger smoke against the sheep of Thy pasture? Remember Thy congregation which Thou hast purchased of old, the rod of Thine inheritance which Thou hast redeemed, this Mount Zion wherein Thou hast dwelt. Lift up Thy feet unto the perpetual desolations, even all that the enemy hath done wickedly in the sanctuary. Thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. They set up their ensigns for signs. A man was famous according as he had lifted up axes upon the thick trees. But now they break down the carved work thereof at once with axes and hammers. They have cast fire into thy sanctuary. They have defiled by casting down the dwelling place of thy name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them together. They have burned up all the synagogues of God in the land. We see not our signs. There is no more any prophet, neither is there any any that knoweth how long. O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Why withdrawest thou thy hand, even thy right hand? Pluck it out of thy bosom. For God is my King of old working salvation in the midst of the earth. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest in the heads of the Leviathan in pieces. Gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Thou didst cleave the fountain and the flood. Thou driedst up mighty rivers. The day is thine. The night also is thine. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Thou hast set all the borders of the earth. Thou hast made summer and winter. Remember this, that the enemy hath reproached, O Lord, and that the foolish people have blasphemed Thy name. O deliver not the soul of Thy turtle dove unto the multitude of the wicked. Forget not the congregation of Thy poor forever. Have respect unto the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. O let not the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise Thy name. Arise, O God. Plead Thine own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproacheth Thee daily. Forget not the voice of Thine enemies. The tumult of those that rise up against Thee increaseth continually. Amen. We trust the Lord to add His own blessing to the public reading of His Word and with the word open and read before us, let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, tonight we rejoice to sing 
your praises in the midst of your people. And we pray that even the testimonies we have shared, the prayers we have shared together in song, would find lodging in your ears. Lord, often we've prayed that you would cleanse even our worship. We long for that day in which we will sing and worship and praise and serve with unsinning hearts. Lord, we have a man at your right hand that intercedes and purges with his own blood. Think and have often prayed that prayer. We've taken our sins, our evil works, and our good works, and we've lumped them together into one and fled from them both unto Christ. The Lord, receive us tonight in our Savior. And help us in even the sober reflections of this psalm tonight. Give grace to us, for truly we live in a needy hour. And so, Lord, prosper your word to us, we ask, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we said, one is put before us that Asaph often sings in a minor key. And some of these psalms are psalms of trouble. I dare say we'd be hard-pressed to find troubles depicted and the condition of heart, or we might say the struggles of heart, uh, more powerfully put than how we find the words placed before us in this psalm. Commentators are divided and discuss the possible contexts for this psalm. Most suggest that it is looking at the destruction by the Babylonians, 586 B.C., most probably by the remnant that was left in the land, those that were in reproach and derision there that we've seen even recently in our prayer times. Some suggest that it was perhaps uh, in the intertestamental period under the Maccabeans, but against that understanding is the prospect that at that point the, the second temple was just defiled, it wasn't destroyed. This depicts a destruction that is full. For some that even suggest that this is a psalm to be viewed prophetically. That it is the destruction of the temple by the Romans in A.D. 70, and that it is a remnant of the people that are lamenting and putting this confession before the Lord. Some of their arguments for that regard are when you see in verse 9, there's no more prophet. And there were prophets that were living in the time of the Babylonian destruction, but we may comment on that as we go along. I tend to go with those that see here the destruction by the Babylonians. But it's a psalm that for any that have a heart for God and a burden for the kingdom of God and the affairs of His church, it certainly strikes a chord when we see some of the devastation, some of the impoverishment that can belong to the Lord's people in this ongoing pilgrimage of the church. And the world. So I want to look at the psalm. I think there's some simple divisions that we'll notice as we go along. The first is really about the half of the psalm from verse 1 down through verse 11. And if I could suggest to you a theme for this section and the thoughts that are contained in it, that we see here a reverent rehearsal of the present calamity. One suggested, and I think it was suggested well, that the questions and the struggles of these opening verses seem to come forth from faith rather than unbelief. 
But it's faith that's perplexed. It's faith that's looking at the present circumstances and wondering, how can these things be? And I've said, and we've had to deal often in these recent days with our own circumstances, and our faith and our very lives can come to a point of perplexity when we see the things that God is permitting to transpire in our nation and in the world. Perhaps some of the questions that the psalmist asks are questions that we might have. These are hard questions. They're questions where faith is struggling. Verse 1, why? Why? Verse 10, the question, how long? How can it be? How long can it be? Verse 11 that closes out this section again. The question is why? The faith that would underscore these you see scattered throughout this section of the psalm because the psalmist continually remembers that it's the Lord's house that's been destroyed. It's the Lord's people that are being killed and slaughtered and enslaved. It's the Lord's land that is now desolate. And so, there's faith underneath. But that faith is perplexed. Because believing that it is the Lord's. Believing that the Lord has built these people. The Lord has redeemed and entered into covenant with these people. The Lord has set His name upon them. And yet, these calamities are permitted to happen. Well, it doesn't take much if you consider the history that is recorded for us to understand that. But yet sometimes when we read the Scriptures, we take the long view. We're looking back and we can span centuries in a few verses or a few chapters. These are people that are living through it. They, they get accustomed to the circumstances. And sometimes I think it's a situation that we need to look at and mindful of and sometimes ourselves step back and take the big picture, the long view. We're so bombarded with sins every day that they don't shock us anymore. We say often in a different context that we shouldn't get used to being saved. I think that's a good heart to have as a believer, to marvel that we may have been saved for majority of our lives in some cases as we grow older. We've known more days as God's child than as those that are His enemies. Well, just as the wonder of being saved should always be fresh in our hearts and minds, the horrors of the sin that surrounds us should always shock us and give us pause. Let us not get used to days of open sinfulness and perversion. Let us with the psalmist ask, Lord, why? Of course, the answers aren't hard to find. It was because of Israel's sin that God permitted this. It's because of the sins of our age that God has permitted what is happening today. And again, lest we think it's always somebody else's sins. 
Remember that prayer of Daniel we just recently read? Nehemiah's prayer. They confessed the sins of their fathers. They could see and understand plainly the apostasy of the nation that led them to the captivity. But do they pray with bitter hearts, Lord, our fathers sinned and we're the ones bearing the consequences? There were some that engaged in that. Ezekiel talks about father's sin and the children's teeth are set on edge. But that's not the gospel heart. The gospel heart is that we see in Daniel and Nehemiah. Both we and our fathers have sinned. And that should be that which consumes our thoughts as we look and see the circumstances Not the literal burning of a temple, but the decay of the influence of the church, the decay of the church's testimony and power. We see in another place in a psalm that is somewhat parallel to this, Psalm 79, as we'll see in a few weeks, and then the whole book of Lamentations. The heathen come in to God's heritage. The heathen look at God's people and say, where is now their God? It's a blasphemous boast because of the calamity that God allows to take place. And while I say then there's a measure of faith, though it's perplexed underneath these questions, nonetheless the realities of the calamity are there. The temple destroyed. Prophets silent. I said there are those that don't see this as the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem by the Babylonians because there were prophets living in that day. But I don't think this reference in verse 9 precludes us from understanding that as the context. Because in many ways the prophets had been silenced. They'd been silenced by their own people. They'd been in prison. They'd been put in pits. They'd been exiled. The people didn't want to hear their prophets. It's like the land of Israel in the century before. They silenced their prophets. I always thought about Amos. He was a prophet that caught my attention as a young man, as a teenager really. One of the accusations brought before the king against Amos was the land is not able to bear all his words. We almost hear that phrased literally in our generation. The land isn't able to take that kind of preaching. The land isn't able to take this type of rebuke and calling out of sin. The prophets that were silenced in many ways were silenced by Israel's own direction. And if there's a further silence that's in view for this remnant perhaps left in the desolate land, prophets of the captivity, Ezekiel, Daniel and his companions are not with them in Jerusalem anymore. They're not hearing even that unwanted preaching anymore. Perhaps one of the most striking phrases in the psalm, at least to me, is that opening phrase of verse 9. We see not our psalm. The signs and the boasts and the publicized creeds, as it were, of the ungodly are everywhere to be seen. But where's there a testimony for God? Where are there signs of God working in the land? Of God's law and of God's people walking in His ways? 
Those are nowhere to be seen. What a phrase. We see not our signs. It's a phrase I said that's one of those that's been etched in my mind for many years. It's just so striking to consider such a circumstance. If I could pause for a moment and broaden the application here. That's a delicate place for God's people to be. When they look around and they don't see their signs. We live in times in which we could say we don't see our signs. You might apply that to denominational smallness. You apply that broader than our single little denomination and those of similar faith and practice have a very small testimony in our generation as well. I don't think it's an inappropriate application of the phrase. You could say that such testimony is almost invisible in our generation. But how do we live in such times when we don't see our signs? If we can understand our need to have our faith directed in the right place, in the right direction. We have to have our faith in trusting in God be a vertical direction when we can look around that horizontal gaze. The things that we see horizontally when it comes to God's people and God's church can and should all be well and good for our souls. That the church is a place of encouragement and help. The pursuit of the means of grace. Those that have gone before, training up the next generation and them preparing to train others that will follow after them. We see that in the pastoral epistles and the normal progression of God's people. But when we come to circumstances where we don't see our signs, and we're perplexed and nearly overwhelmed, how do we respond? Be very careful. For every help that you can get from the horizontal, from fellow believers, from the church itself, from Sunday school teachers, from camp counselors, to preachers, to missionaries, to all of the above, for all the help they can and should be to our souls. They can in many ways on an individual level and then almost in mass disappoint us in days such as these. We see not our signs. What does that do to our faith? Well, if the horizontal has been the whole of our gaze, the whole of where we gain sustenance and help in the right way and in the things of God when we're in trouble. But here the psalmist is put in a situation where there's nothing on the horizontal plane anymore to give help at all. But yet he still has somewhere to go. He has a God to cry to. I say let us be very mindful of trusting God Because days may come when there's precious little on the horizontal to help us. But we will not in those days be alone. 
Well, I say these opening verses are a reverent rehearsal of the present calamity. But if you come to verses 12 to 17, here we see a joyful remembrance of former mercies. The tone of the psalm is so changed that some, perhaps of more critical and yet evangelical schools, think something of another unknown psalm is is used here. We do see some psalms and prophets borrowing and quoting from one another in God's own word here. I don't think we have to understand it as something external that's brought in. It's just a change of understanding and perspective. Even from that low point of calamity can be great. And so here I say there's a joyful remembrance of God's former mercies. God is my King of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. And you go through here and we see again rehearse those events of the exodus and of the occupation of the land. One commentator put it this way, these two great events of the exodus and of God dwelling in the midst of His people sums up all of Israel's history. How many times are they called in the Psalms and in the prophets and the historical books to remember that deliverance? And God choosing a place in the midst of the land where He might set His name and that He might be known in the midst of His people. Here I say then there's a joyful remembrance of God's works of old. That God is in the midst of His people. That God is upon the throne. The present enemy is no stronger, no more able in their own strength than was Egypt to overthrow God's people. Remembrance of Egypt is the remembrance that God raises up pharaohs and puts them down. Paul makes such use of that in Romans. We know God said even for this same purpose of Pharaoh, have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee. You think even of the final day and that final ruler of evil in this world exceeding all that have gone before. It will be just as true of him as it was of Pharaoh. God has raised him up to show his power and putting him down. And so the psalmist has joyful remembrances of former mercies. And we would become perplexed and look around and see the situation as dire and seemingly hopeless for the cause of God and His truth and His gospel and His church as We might at times be tempted to think it is. Think of redemption. Think of the eternal purpose of God. Think of the success of the work of Jesus Christ. Let us then with the psalmist, even in the midst of the crisis, come out of the perplexity and with faith recognize for all of these circumstances, for all of these problems, for all the danger, for all the harm that might even in a temporal way come upon the church and even upon me, it doesn't diminish His power. It doesn't diminish His love for me. It doesn't diminish His control over all things. He reigns. As Daniel, a solitary individual in the midst of the most powerful empire history had seen. He can humbly and yet boldly stand before kings and say, there's a God in heaven that rules. 
He does whatsoever He pleases. You're not really in control. Can you imagine? And yet it's happened. It's true. So this joyful remembrance of former mercies. But look, from the last, verse 18 to the end, here we see, I suggest, an expectant prayer for God to glorify His own name. As is true in the Psalms so often when the psalmist cries out from a position for a time of trouble. The troubles that have kind of been the impetus for the psalm, those troubles aren't gone. They're still there. But the psalmist has aired his concerns. He's aired his problems. He's aired his questions and his perplexities. He's wrestled with God. And even though the problems are still there, his perspective on the problems has changed. He's released from his fears. He's released from his perplexities. And so he says, remember this, verse 18, that the enemy hath reproached, O Lord, the foolish people have blasphemed thy name. Deliver not the soul of thy turtle dove unto the multitude of the wicked. Forget not the congregation of thy poor forever. And for all the uncertainty of the other foundations that are shaking and crumbling, you have this, verse 20, have respect unto the covenant. God has bound Himself. Whether we see this as God's promises to Israel that Paul even references in Romans chapters 9-11 to that yet have a future fulfillment. Whether we broaden that application where it certainly applies to that overarching covenant of grace that includes all of the redeemed of all the ages. All the evils of this world culminated and focused at whatever intervals and seasons of history that God has allowed. They can't change His covenant. They can't change His gospel purpose. They can't change the end of the story. And this expectant prayer, I say, is in a season where the troubles are still there. The problems are very present. And even in this section, there are urgent requests. But notice significantly, the questions are gone. The whys. And the how longs that were scattered throughout verses 1 to 11, they're not here in these verses. The psalmist has been given some measure of peace because as he works it through, ultimately he lays it at the Lord's feet. And you see the repetition Thy people, thy sanctuary, thy land, thine own cause, he says. And there, verse 22. If there's a phrase, as I said in verse 9, we see not our signs. that kind of lodges in the mind. Here's another. Plead thine own cause. It's interesting you see the seasons in history where the enemies have been at their strongest and God's people have been at their weakest. God has moved. Israel's enslaved in Egypt. And God says He's going to work in such a way that not only the Jews, but the Egyptians are going to know that He is Jehovah. God doesn't need, we can say this carefully, 
God doesn't need a strong, vibrant, faithful church in order for the ungodly to get the message. God is able to vindicate His own name and for them to know that He is the Lord without any help from His people at all. Our prayer would be in seasons of refreshing and restoration and revival that God might humble Himself to use us in such times when He would be made known. That as the psalmist says in Psalm 110, Thy people shall be willing in the day of Thy power. But accompanying those seasons of God reversing these calamities and vindicating His name and vindicating His people it would be a season of revival and blessing for the church. And so the psalmist, I say, quite fittingly closes this very serious, somber psalm in many ways with an expectant prayer for God to glorify His own name, for God to plead His own cause. And we, in many ways, I think are at an interval of history that needs to undergird a lot of our praying. Lord, plead your own cause. Vindicate your own name. The church has done much to dishonor your name. And the faithful church is in such a point of weakness that it can do little against the flood. But God isn't bound by the strength of His church. God can glorify His own name. God can give success and plead His own cause. Asaph, here, His people inquire, bringing us to wrestle with difficult realities, certainly that Israel faced, that we seem to be facing. May God give us something of the help and the right prayers and the right perspective and the right petitions that are found in the Psalms. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Heavenly Father, we tonight come. We've thought of some of these phrases for years and have often thought, how could things get any worse? But then they are. But we can, in measure, lift the phrase, we see not our signs. But we lift also the phrase, plead thine own cause. Lord, be pleased to humble and sanctify us and use us in bearing testimony, in being a light of truth in the midst of such a crooked and perverse generation. Lord, do not let us be overwhelmed with our questions. Don't let us become so battered in our faith that instead of seeking You and earnestly crying as the psalmist did, that we just abandon hope and, and drift into worldliness and sin. So increase our faith and give us some of the cries even from such low and painful points as the psalmist knew. Cries and faith directed heavenward that You would in days such as our own 
plead your own cause. Prosper your word to us. Lord, bless those meditations that we've known in this Sabbath day. Take us to our homes and our varied occupations, encouraged and stirred in our faithfulness, overwhelmed by your long-suffering as we've seen this morning, and that we might be lights in each place in which you've called us. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' worthy name.